Welcome to Change Making Women, the podcast for women who make a difference. With Ziada Baid in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and Marianne Clements in London, in the UK. So, hi, and welcome to another episode of Change Making Women. I'm Marianne Clements, um, broadcasting from a very warm evening in London, in the UK. And Ziada's here with me as usual. Hi, Ziada. Hi, Marianne. And uh, as Marianne said, my name is Ziada Bade and I am podcasting all the way from Dar es Salaam. It's been raining um, cats and dogs <laughs> from our end, <laughs> but it's tropical weather. It's still hot. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's hot everywhere tonight. And we have also got Nicole Schwab, who's our guest with us this evening. And she's a writer and she, I guess she'll tell us where in the world she is and how hot it is there that's the theme of our intro this evening but more importantly after that nicole we'd love to hear about your work your writing just um share with us and our guests who you are and and, and the work you do that matters thank you marianne hello hello ziada so i'm uh, in geneva switzerland and we've had a lovely day and a slightly cooler evening so that's on the weather intro <laughs> And um, I'm a writer. I'm also a social entrepreneur. I created a number of organizations um, working on gender, gender equality. And then I've been also accompanying another few nonprofits in the areas of environment. So reforestation and ocean, ocean conservation. And tonight, I think I'm going to speak mainly as a writer. Uh, I published my first book, which is called The Heart of the Labyrinth. Well, it was actually published by Womancraft Publishing there in Ireland. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, I guess we, we'll, we'll go more in detail, but um, I started writing when I was very young, but I only wrote this book and it's a, it's a novel uh, a few years ago uh, when I felt I really had these burning themes that be, I had been carrying all my life and that I wanted to to put out there in the world so I'm really looking forward to sharing a bit of that with you. Brilliant. I, I think we should dive in and hear um, a little bit more about the themes in the book maybe. The Heart of the Labyrinth sounds like an intriguing title. Um, just tell us a bit about that and what you know what what that points to I guess. Yes so um, I'll give you a bit of background. So I'd been working for quite some time on the topic of gender and gender equality. And I was really curious to understand why in 2018, I mean, I started 10 years ago, but still, why we still see the, you know, different opportunities for men and women um, in countries like Switzerland, the UK, and, and we're talking in places where normally you wouldn't expect things like that. And so I, I, I was really curious and I started going into... Uh, research and I stumbled upon this whole area of subconscious biases and I became really really interested in how our subconscious beliefs start to shape our reality and how sometimes we think we believe something but actually our behaviors are shaped by these underlying conditioned reactions that we're not even aware of and so Based on that, um, I, I really started diving deeper into, well, what, what's under gender and what's really, you know, what is the feminine? What is the masculine? And so this book, it's, it's an exploration. It's the story of a woman who uh, has a job, a fast-paced job. She lives in New York. She's very successful. And then she 
she gets sick and she decides to go on a journey and she goes on a trip uh, to Bolivia, to the Andes and into the Amazon to look for her mother. But actually this journey is not so much about, I mean, it is about finding her mother, but along the way she actually goes on a journey into her mind and into her subconscious beliefs around the theme of the feminine and understanding that, um, this feminine force uh, of creation, this feminine aspect of hers is something she had suppressed. And that there is a parallel between the way we collectively as a society have been subconsciously or sometimes consciously, but very often subconsciously suppressing the feminine and the way we've been treating nature. So as she goes along, she also sees a whole parallel between her individual journey and what's happening to her and the collective fate of the planet so that's the the themes and the heart of the labyrinth points to the labyrinth in our mind and the need to come to the heart to really understand who we are and why we're here interesting okay so i have um i guess maybe just it's um an exciting idea to me to write a book about subconscious bias because to me um it, you know it's a really intriguing theme that I think about more as um I don't know as, as, as something to theorize about rather than to be you know a novel about it so I'm interested just for our listeners who might be thinking well, what's subconscious bias and how can I kind of understand what that is in the context of a novel maybe we could just explore a little bit what what you mean um by subconscious bias in the book and how that kind of manifests in your character. Yes, of course. And I, I jumped a bit fast because of course it's quite complex yeah, and, and I, because I was trying to make the link from my work, you know, where it's aspects I was seeing in my work and then the writing, but sure. of course in the context of a novelist different. So I'll give you an example. I think um, what it comes down to very often is it's this kind of a question about the belief of what someone is worth Mm -hmm. And in this case, you know, the worth of the feminine. So, and when I say feminine, I don't mean woman. And I think this is an important distinction. I mean, really the feminine as an aspect of every human being, feminine, masculine. And I think that um, in a way we've been conditioned to think of certain qualities, certain aspects of ourselves as less important than others. So we have a belief. It's like, let's say we think, I'm going to make it very specific, right? So this woman, her name is Maya, the main character. She has um, this important job, but there's aspects of her personality that she believes she cannot express because they are not valued in the workplace. And these aspects, you know, we could say a sensitivity, heightened sensitivity in the case of Maya, she's extremely sensitive, um, empathic, um, and she thinks she has to behave in certain ways to fit in. But that's, those are these subconscious beliefs. And by that, I mean, it's not that we wake up in the morning and we say, oh, I'm going to suppress this part of who I actually am. <laughs> but it's that because of how we've been brought up we think that we have to behave in certain ways and so in her case she she gets sicker and sicker and it's really a sign that you know the body is speaking that something is completely out of balance here because we cannot i believe we cannot you know keep forcing ourselves to be in a certain way where when that's not how we are so this is um i hope that makes it a little bit clearer and i think 
what I talk about subconscious beliefs and not, you know, unconscious because we actually can bring them into consciousness. And this is the journey of Maya. So as she goes into, she meets this character um, in the Andes and this character will help her <clears throat> to go into her mind. So she starts having dreams and visions and which kind of help her to understand what's really going on and how she's been living a life that doesn't correspond to who she is. I'm I'm interested in like where where the idea for the book came from, and I'm wondering if it is directly from your work or, or how the pieces came together, or whether I know sometimes when we write, the story just kind of comes from somewhere we don't even know where. So I, I'm just intrigued as to how the story came to you as a writer. Yes, I think it's. Um... Well, it's interesting because I think part of the themes I have, you know, experienced in terms of those themes of uh, the feminine and reclaiming the feminine part of it, I have seen in others or stories that have been told to me. But also I, I wrote the book in Greece, in Delphi. <clears throat> and Delphi is a site, it's an ancient site uh, where there used to be an oracle, which was very important in the Greek world, the Oracle of Delphi. And Actually, um, what we usually know and are taught is that it's the oracle at the temple of Apollo. Apollo is a male uh, god of the sun and, and light and um, kind of the enlightenment. Mm -hmm. But before that, there was an oracle who was serving the Mother Earth. And when I went there, I was really struck by how, you know, there and in many other parts of the world, there were... Um, priestesses, women, I mean, also men in other parts, but really worshipping the feminine, worshipping the Mother Earth. And at some point in history, there was a turning point where these temples, even the temples were changed. So now it was no longer the Mother Earth, it was a male god. And so the priestesses, they were still um, women who were chosen from the village, who were speaking as the oracle. But now they were speaking no longer on behalf of the earth, but they were speaking on behalf of Apollo. And so when I went to Greece, um, I went looking for a place to write my book and I had the themes in mind, but since I kind of stumbled upon this site and, and I read and I started being so fascinated by the Oracle and the history of the, like the Oracle traditions in different parts of the world. And that's how the story all came together because I saw a huge parallel between what has happened historically um, in terms of the cultures and, and the myths and the traditions and what has happened within ourselves in terms of how we see the feminine within ourselves and how that's expressed um, in how we, how we treat, you know, the Mother Earth and how we treat nature and, and all the environmental consequences thereof. So if you want, it's kind of these three themes that came together and I spent um, six months in Greece in just below Delphi and I wrote the book. So it was quite a... Um, a lot of inspiration and I, when I, as I started writing and some parts of the book talk about the story of the Oracle. So it's, kind of, it's woven into Maya's experiences. Um, I'm interested to know, so uh, is the book um, fictional or? Yes, and, and uh, so I would say that, you know, all if all fiction is inspired by, well, not all, but most fiction is also inspired by real events. And in this case, um, it's, it has some truth to it in the sense that also when I talk about how our, you know, how, our, how we form beliefs, because Maya, so she goes, as, as I said, she meets this, this man who starts, he's called the sage and he starts sharing things with her. 
and um and all these things are i mean to my knowledge this is my understanding of how it happens in reality so it's not a <laughs> fantasy if you want and also some of the case like there's some stories of other characters that come in and they are inspired also by real people so it's um it's fiction but drawing on real real elements and again uh what i just mentioned about delphi of course i i read as much as i could about you know historical accounts of what happened before the greeks but there isn't that much and then the rest is my imagination filling it in which is of course also the beauty of uh, of writing fiction mm. and crafting crafting a story around all these elements rather quite interesting um coming off the book a bit um you do say that you are a social entrepreneur um I would like to know what does that entail when you say you are a yes. social entrepreneur. Well, it's a grand word actually and I I I'm not sure I I, uh, <laughs> I I should call myself that. I have been called that but I don't know if I should call myself that. But what it entails is um creating organizations that use tools that could be non-profit tools, for-profit tools but that have a, a social or environmental um aim so that basically your your mission is to have an impact and but that doesn't mean that you have to create a non-profit organizations and i think this term has been it's become more and more uh, used nowadays um to also refer to different organizational models you know so kind of breaking from the traditional okay if you want to create something you create a company or you create an ngo but like that there's so many different possibilities and why should we limit ourselves um but the the word really means social that you are driven by by your mission and not by you know making profit or 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 other other elements so um so in my case i mean i've i've participated in the creation of a number of organizations but the one i've been most um i guess involved in was 10 years ago together with um my friend aniela ungoresan we created an organization called edge it was called the gender equality project and it's a certification system and a methodology to help companies um uh, achieve gender equality in the workplace so hence the you know that's kind of when i started about talking about the book where i started actually in day to day life <laughs> it was really about looking at well what are the barriers to having equal opportunities for men and women in the workplace at a global level and what does that mean in terms of policies practices human resources you know pay salary everything and then from there little by little i started going more towards the underlying and and what's actually happening psychologically and behaviorally and the the, the bias as i said and then eventually i i left the organization my uh, co-founder she's still running it um and i wrote i wrote the heart of the labyrinth so edge is now working in 40 countries we have 200 very large uh, companies that we're working with and it's um yeah it's it's very nice to see that it's you know the topic has also become much more um mainstream because i think when we started people were telling us oh why are you talking about gender equality it's already something that we've achieved <laughs> so um whereas now i think with all the movements that we've seen also in the past year i think people realize that we still have um we still have some work to do i'm interested to know a little bit more about edge actually and how how it relates to the the piece about subconscious bias like what did you learn 
um, <laughs> that maybe informs the book. I, you know, you don't have to draw a direct, direct parallel necessarily, but I'm just interested in what you learned from that, um, that context of working with organizations. Yes, it's very interesting because, um, you know, when you look at, I mean, the biases, they will play out in everything from performance evaluations. So how women will get evaluated, how men will get evaluated, the criteria that are being used, even the wording, the adjectives that are used when people write a job ad. So, I mean, it, it, it's across everything. And, um, you know, and there's two kind of approaches. And some people think, okay, we have to change people's biases right so there's been all these trainings diversity trainings in companies to try to educate people and say okay when you're interviewing someone you really have to make sure that you're not behaving differently if it's a woman and if it's a man right or if you're offering someone a pay for their job beware that you know don't offer a woman less just because she's a woman for the same position so there so some people take the approach of awareness raising and training and then there's other people like um one of our advisors she's called uh, professor iris bonnet she's at harvard she's at the kennedy school and she says well actually it takes too long to change people's biases so it's much faster to put in place policies that will change the structure and then change the context which in turn changes people's beliefs so i'll give you an example um this is a very famous example but it makes the point and and we saw it in different contexts so in the 70s in the united states the national the big orchestras they only had i think um something like between four and ten percent women like the the, the percentage of women musicians was very low mm. and they said okay now we're going to do additions behind a curtain so that the directors can't the, or, the um, orchestra directors can't see if the person playing it playing is a woman or a man and all the orchestra directors said, no, but we, we don't have biases. We're just listening to music. So they implemented the curtain anyway. And now we have 40% women musicians. So it went up from, I don't know, 5 7% up to 40% because of the black curtain. And this makes the point that you can tell someone, oh, you have to change your beliefs. But it's going to be very difficult for that actually to happen. Whereas when you put in place... Um, some policies and this can be done in the case of you know how you do interviews how you um, promote people i mean there's kind of a parallel between the black curtain and what you can do within an organization to change the structure and now you know then if you see that orchestras are made up 50 50 of women then your beliefs about women playing music are going to change and so it's like this virtuous cycle so that's it's kind of a long way to to talk about it but I think for EDGE, what we learned is that we wanted to focus on policies and practices because that's where there is this really important key where you can make a difference. And then for me, the book was more of a kind of a different kind of exploration where I'm not, you know, with this book, I'm not aiming to change the structure of organizations necessarily, but more to, to touch people and to raise awareness, uh, but also to inspire. Mm. And to go one step further, because I think to me, the link with, um, with the earth and with, um, you know, our behavior towards the earth and this whole topic of sustainability 
as long as we don't draw the link between what we actually value and whether, you know, do we value that in ourselves? And it's this kind of life-giving force. Um, we're going to remain kind of cut off just in our heads and we're not going to be able to, to address this issue from a whole being. So, so with the book, if you want, I introduced a completely different theme, which we weren't working on at all um, in the context of Edge. Mm. And I, I'd, I'd love to explore that, the theme of the relationship between um, these biases in, in, in ourselves and then the way we treat the planet a bit more, because I think it's an interesting one. And one I've heard from, you know, a few different angles over the last few years, but I'd, um, I'd love to hear your, you know, just delve a bit deeper into your perspective on that and, and um, yeah, just hear a bit more actually. <laughs> yes. Becoming vague, but not deliberately, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 that's, that's fine. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, so I think, you know, if, if like we're all, um, if you think about it, everything we, we eat, everything we like, what we drink, the air we breathe, it all comes from, from the earth, really. So even without being esoteric at all, <laughs> you know, this concept of Mother Earth to me makes a lot of sense because we have this relationship with this planet that's actually providing for our survival. I mean, very literally. However, we've been approaching this relationship in a way that's very transactional. And that's in general, I, I'm generalizing, of course, not everybody, and certainly not uh, indigenous people. But um, in our societies, like we've been, you know, approaching this more from a, this approach of resource extraction and kind of... Um, a very like and, and that's where for me there's this kind of masculine feminine thing going on as well because if you think about it the values of the feminine are cyclical right they are there's this aspect of nurturing but there's also this aspect of of uh, understanding the cyclical nature of ourselves and also of the earth and therefore um if we are to um, use resources from the planet to understand that there is a cyclical process for these resources to replenish themselves and restore. And so it's, it's like this approach that I would say is a feminine approach versus a very linear approach where we just extract, extract, extract. And, you know, now we're coming to a point, I mean, we don't need to go into this, but very clearly we have a number of environmental crises looming and tipping points and, um, you know, the climate is changing. And so to me, that's, it's like, well, when are we going to understand that this is a direct consequence of how we relate to the earth? And again, for me, this is a direct consequence of the fact that we are uh, embracing an approach that is more masculine and that devalues the feminine, the life-giving, that it's like we've been told that you know, it, it's not as important, you know, why are we, and, that, and that's where I draw the parallel, you know, why are women paid less? I mean, I, this, there's a lot of reasons, but to simplify, there is something very deep about worth and what are we worth, you know? And, and so you could apply that again as well to the planet. What is the planet worth? What are all these resources worth that we're just taking for granted? So there's, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of uh, going all over the place, maybe in a cyclical way as well. <laughs> but um, I think there's so many elements and that um, this, it's, for me, it's really important that we 
we reconnect with both and it's not that you know the, the feminine is more important but we have both of these sides within us and i feel that we need to come into balance within ourselves to have a harmonious relationship with with other beings on this planet and and with the planet itself so i hope that that answers your question it does answer mm. my question um, sorry the other go ahead yeah i was just curious you know you know what was the most challenging thing when while you were writing this book mm. <laughs> so interestingly it was such a pleasure and it was really effortless <laughs> and i keep okay. meeting people who who tell me about how difficult it was and i i had a, an incredible experience and i think um the, the so the the process of writing it was actually not challenging at all to be honest uh, it was more like a liberation because I'd been waiting to write for so long. I mean, for, you know, years and years and years. And so I think maybe it's because of that. I had like the book kind of right there ready to come out and I just really wanted to write. And what was more challenging was the whole process beforehand to actually make the space and take the time and to have in a way to, yeah, to also for me to say, okay, I'm really stepping out of this life that I was in, which was extremely full and I am making space to, to write. So, so I would say, yeah, the challenges were more before and maybe after, you know, the whole process of um, um, after the publication of uh, communication around the book and all these things, which when you start writing, you're obviously you're not thinking about that because you just want to write. And, and the skills for promoting a book are very different from those of writing. And yet we expect uh, nowadays writers to do, to do a lot. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I wanted to drill into both of those a little bit. Um, so what did it take to make the space to write a book because that's really interesting I know I've tried all kinds of things in the past to like make time in in my life to write but I've never taken six months out of the rest of my life completely <laughs> what did it take to do that so for me and that's where there is a, a kind of also a small parallel with my heroine at the beginning is that I, I was actually getting burnt out and I was getting really sick Mm -hmm. So interestingly, it's kind of life that took me out <laughs> mm -hmm. and, um, and I really understood that I couldn't continue like this. And I think, um, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of other friends and other people who are also so engaged because we're so passionate about what we do, we work so much, right. And we don't count the hours and we're always on and we're, but at some point that's not balanced either. And so I think, um, I really knew that I had to make a change. I mean, I could really see that I was traveling too much and working too hard. And, and, and then I actually really got sick. So, uh, you know, I, I guess the choice was kind of made for me. And I thought, okay, this is, this is a very strong message here. I have to stop. So, so that's, how, that's how it happened. Yeah. Mm, really interesting. A lot of my work is about how people... Um, how people work through those moments of burnout so i'm interested that's really interesting mm. that actually burnout forced you to write <laughs> it is interesting and with all that you know the passion and the fire inside to write but yet you kept on you know pushing it and pushing it and not you know not writing immediately so i mean 
with all that passion, how did you, how did you leave for so long <laughs> without following that passion of yours, of writing, you know, of bursting out and just giving out some really good, you know, a, a really good uh, reading? And that's an interesting question. I think that I, 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 I was waiting. It's almost like I knew I would write when I would really have something to say. And I don't know, I don't know how, like, it's almost like I felt I needed to have all these years of life, just life experience. And, um, and for me, that just took the time it took and where it was really ripe. And I thought, okay, now I really have something to share and that, that I've, you know, looked at in much detail and angles and experienced. And so, so it wasn't, um, I don't think I was ready before that, really, even though I had this desire to write. But before that, it was more like still in my imagination. And, um, and then it's really when I, yeah, when I, when I decided to step out and to make space and to take some time. And then I, I started writing. I also wanted to ask you about the other end of the process, so the promotion thing. And, and um, yeah, I, I heard you say that these days writers are expected to do a lot of that work themselves. And I've certainly observed that as well. And um, I just wondered, like, how you've managed that, where, how you've been challenged with that. You know, like, what's that been like for you? Yeah, so I have a wonderful editor and publisher, Womancraft Publishing, as I said, and it was really very nice because she had just created the company when I had finished my manuscript and we kind of met online. And I mean, it was just a very smooth and, and, and really nice process. Mm -hmm. So um, so they've been very supportive. So I don't, I'm, by no means am I saying that, you know, my publisher didn't do anything, not at all. Um, but I think it, it was also for me just such a new world yeah. of just landing in this new world and not knowing really anything. And, you know, and then I, she, she encouraged me to start a blog. So I said, okay, I'm going to start a blog, but you're really starting from scratch, right? In terms mm -hmm. of audience and social media. And, and so I think, um, well, I was just learning as I went along, but I think there's a lot of things that I would probably uh, do differently next time, or I should say I will do differently next time mm -hmm. uh, for the next book. Um, in terms of, you know, building up already before the book comes out, building up an audience, building up kind of interest and promotion. And then the other thing, which is also important, is that when the book came out, which it took a year, which was actually quite fast from the moment I started writing until it was out. Wow. But um, even then I wasn't still 100% well, so I wasn't traveling. And so I wasn't traveling really beyond Europe and, I, and even within Europe, very little. And I got invitations, a number of invitations to speak or, you know, I was invited to the Berkeley Book Festival, but I, I didn't go because it was just still too much. Um, health-wise mm -hmm. so I think um, that was also challenging because I had to close the door to some opportunities and just you know just trust that okay it will happen differently and it will happen more online and more you know by word of mouth and so um, yeah that's I would say that's been a little challenging mm. but I'm but still every time someone writes to me you know a reader writes to me and it's so touching and it makes me so happy that I'm not um 
I feel really blessed and privileged to be to have written this book that has touched people and and that's yeah so that's that's really wonderful for me mm. Mm. I am um, so I heard you saying that there was another book coming or that next time you'd do it differently and so I'm intrigued to know what what might be coming next if you know or whether that's still kind of an idea somewhere off or whether you're writing at the moment <laughs> Yes, so I'm actually just started writing another wow. book <laughs> very recently, like we're talking a week ago. So it's very fresh. Um, but I, I definitely have the intention to write another book. No, I'm not sure how long it will take. Um, and the other thing which is very exciting is that uh, when the book came out, The Heart of the Labyrinth, a producer contacted me to ask whether I would be interested to make a movie. And oh. so... I said yes, of course, and I've been writing a screenplay. So this first draft is uh, is complete, and we're now um, yeah we're now going the next steps. So making a movie, as I'm also discovering, is a very long process. Um, but uh, but we now have a screenplay, and I'm pretty confident that um, that it will be produced. So wow. that's also very exciting. Really exciting. Indeed. I can't wait. So when is it uh, expected to premiere? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, the, yeah everyone too asked early to ask. <laughs> And you know, as I said, the book, like one year, it was fast. And I was like, okay, we can do this. And in the, the movie, some people told me, oh, we can take, you know, between three and 10 years. And uh, so I would say from now, probably three years. Yeah. Because from the first draft of the screenplay, you know, there's a whole process for getting in place, the funding, the team, the casting, then the production mm -hmm. starts. So at least three years. Mm. Yeah, making movies yeah, is, not, is not a joke. <laughs> no. <laughs> in a way, it must be. I don't know. I've, I've never been really close to the production of a movie, but I always think all that energy and time and money that goes into it it might even be a bit disappointing when it's just an hour and a half at the end. <laughs> yes, I think it's, it's, it's actually, when you think about it, it's crazy. The, yeah. the amount of work that goes into those 90 minutes, it's yeah. crazy. And I think, I mean, for me, it's, it's just an amazing opportunity to pass the message in a different way to a different audience. So we've, we focused much more, we changed it a bit. So it's much more adventure. There's more, you know, suspense and, um, and it's also tied to some more current themes of what's happening in the Amazon with, um, um, lands that are i mean in, in different countries there's a you know huge issues in terms of concessions and what that means for uh, local indigenous populations when you have um, either mining or or oil extraction going on so the this theme is also present in the book but uh, in the movie it will be more let's say at the forefront and so Mm, yeah so because of all of this it's definitely going to be a big investment of time but i i think if it happens it would be so exciting just to to see it you know take form and to think okay we can hopefully touch more people with that mm -hmm. i actually meant to ask you earlier on because um i was slightly surprised when you said that you'd written the book in greece because of the story you know being in the Andes and the Amazon and, and that part of the world and I just wondered like why is the book 
set on a journey there? Is that a part of the world you know well, or you were inspired by something you'd seen or read? Or yes, I I lived for two years in La Paz in Bolivia in the Andes, okay. and um, I worked for five years in total in in Latin America, and so. I was really inspired living in Bolivia. I just, it's just an incredible country. Um, and the, the culture really touched me while I was there. And it's a culture where people still have a link today to the Pachamama, which is the mother earth. And it's a very, uh, it's, it's, um, it's like an alive relationship where people will do ceremony and will do offerings to the Pachamama in a very normal way, like in a very day-to-day, you know, normal um, way that's completely integrated into their lives and into their concepts. Again, not everyone, but a lot of Bolivians. Um, and, and a lot of, you know, what happens even if you're working in an office or, I mean, there's always some form of rituals that are somehow connected. And so that's why the story is set in Bolivia, because it is about this journey to, um, towards the mother earth and to rekindle our relationship with the mother earth. And, uh, and I think I, you know, I see this parallel with Greece, which is, one wouldn't necessarily think about it, but with Greece and Gaia and the Oracle of Gaia. And that's why I brought the two together. Mm. Okay, mm. And speaking of uh, journeys, um, from the beginning of your journey till now, what do you think are some of the you know, lessons you picked in between and you're still picking because it's still a journey? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think there, there were maybe different lessons in different parts of the journey. Um, but the, um, I think the most important one, and that's related to some of the themes in the book, actually, have to do more with, with me and kind of finding balance in my life and kind of this lesson of if I want to be effective and if I want to be able to contribute on the on the topics that I care about. I mean, whether it's you know, by working or accompanying an organization on, on reforestation, for example, or something, or whether it's in writing the book, I really need to find my own balance in terms of, of health and energy and well-being. And that's been a huge journey, I would say, and, a, and quite an exploration of how to find that balance. And, but the biggest learning is, well, that's core and to make that central because otherwise you can't really do anything else. So um, I think it's taken me time as well to accept that that has to be a central piece of my life and something, I mean, you were talking before Marianne about burnout, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and kind of the learnings that come out of that, um, which I would say is the biggest one for me and one that I think about every day is how to find balance in my life. And it, it brings us quite neatly to our favorite question. You want to ask it, Ziada? <laughs> <laughs> Oh yes, gladly I will. Um, so you, when you think, oh, you're not being, you know, an author, and a hero out there in the world, you know, and changing the community one step at a time. How do you take care of yourself? <laughs> yes, so I um, I live in in the forest actually. So I'm I'm in Geneva, but I'm actually 45 minutes outside of Geneva and just at the foot of a mountain. And I live in a forest. I have deer wandering across my yard. <laughs> and um, 
that's the way I take care of myself is by living in nature because that allows me, for me, it's really how I resource myself. And so just by having my base here, it's like a little sanctuary. Then I can go out, you know, into the world, into the city. I can do what I need to do, but I know I can come back and I can have that space and that silence and that connection with nature, which, um, which for me is, is really, really important. And um, yeah, of course, there's many other things, but I would say that's for me, that's the core and spending time outside every day, whether it's, you know, snowing or, or whether it's a beautiful day, but really, really being outside. Beautiful. Thanks, Nicole. Um, it, it, it seems like that's very congruent with the themes of the book and, you know, the way that your work's taken you. So I'm excited for the film <laughs> and the next book as well. And um, it's been really, it's been really good speaking with you this evening. Thank you for being with us. Um, just one last question, uh, Nicole. Um, where can our listeners find you? Yes, so I have a website, um, nicoleschwab.com. So it's N-I-C-O-L-E. S-C-H-W-A-B.com and I have a blog there and um, and you can find also all the information on my book and otherwise I'm also on Facebook. Um, my page on Facebook is Nicole Schwab um, author, Nicole Schwab author. So I hope to see you there and I'm always very happy to hear from from everybody, from anybody who reads my book or who has anything to comment or to share or to ask. And as well as um, your book, where can we find it? Um, so it's this, it, all the major distributors are carrying it. So um, whether, you know, whether it's Amazon or Kindle or it's an ebook, uh, it's also on Nook. It's, you can pretty much find it everywhere. Your library should also be able to order it. If they don't have it in stock, you can ask them for it. Uh, the Heart of the Labyrinth. And I've even done an audiobook, which was a wonderful experience. So that's quite new. But for those who like to listen, you can find it on Audible as well and on iTunes as well. Thank you. And our theme tune over and over was written and performed by Eleanor Brown, who you can find at eleanorbrownmusic.com. <laughs>